The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Hello and welcome to another live edition of What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley. With me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He is a traditional Catholic priest of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very time. Well, Tom, actually better. <laughs> Thank you. And I can't say I'm very fine right now. But uh, better than I have been. Thanks for your prayers. And uh, yourself, how are you doing? Not too bad, Father. Great yeah, to have you. Good to see you. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, Father, any prayers you'd like to request tonight before we get started? Well, there are always those who need prayers, uh, especially the children. I would ask for prayers for them. And um, some young people who are really struggling right now. Um, as a father involved in a, uh, and he's not a traditional Catholic gentleman, uh, but he's uh, fighting for his young son who's involved in an abuse situation. Uh, they're separated, unfortunately. He's trying to rescue his son from that situation, so he asked for prayers. And uh, I don't have to mention any names because God knows who they are, and if we pray for them, then God will know what to do for them. So, um, but there are always many we know who are in need of prayers, and uh, I ask for all of our what Catholics believers to be praying for each other also each day. Um, and... Uh, that they would know that there are those praying for them, and they will be the beneficiaries of those prayers, too. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, thanks. Uh, actually, um, we do have a staff here. Um, we have dedicated people, a small staff, but very dedicated people, and uh, I, I always would commend them to uh, the prayers of those who watch what Catholics believe and mm -hmm. benefit from their labors. Very good. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Father. Well, we have um, several things we wanted to discuss, some, some viewer emails on, um, on various topics, but uh, I wanted, Father, to, um, to, to get your response to something, some, some very, I think, disturbing news that, um, that has just recently come out of, out of England. There was a, an article on National Catholic Register, also LifeSite News posted about this, um, Apparently, uh, in, in various towns in, in England, they're talking about having these so-called buffer zones um, around abortion clinics where um, certain religious activities are, are prohibited. And even in some, I understand that this, this may already be in, in effect in some, uh, in some English provinces where they have actually forbidden, um, they, they've drawn red lines and, and forbidden inside anywhere uh, near these abortion facilities any sprinkling of holy water, any reciting of scripture, any um, making the sign of the cross and, and these public spaces uh, around these abortion <laughs> providers. Um, but I understand on, on a much larger scale, this is actually, I guess, working through the English Parliament, the House of Lords, House of Commons right now. Um, so, Father, what, what's your um, what's your reaction to to hearing about this? These buffer zones, where these any so much religious activity is prohibited around these abortion clinics. Well, the United Kingdom has uh, <clears throat> unfortunately fallen victim to a, a kind of godlessness, which is really uh, satanic. 
<coughs> Excuse me, Tom. You know I haven't been too well lately. And uh, it's expressing itself in this uh, almost mania for abortion, as though abortion is the unholy grail. Um, and when you think about it, I mean, you can understand why those who, who uh, reject God uh, cling to abortion, because abortion is like the ultimate statement that there is no soul, that there is no God who is the master of life and death, but it is parliament, or it is the king, or it is whoever in the government uh, has the right to decide these things, the medical uh, officials, right? Um, who can decide whether a life is worth saving or actually should be put to death, someone should be put to death, medically. Um, so abortion is like the ultimate... Um, is like the ultimate rejection of God and his sovereignty. But if there's one love that should be sacrosanct, that is held up as the closest thing to divine love, it is mother's love for a child. And the fact that the mother begets the child and wants the child put to death um, because that child is uh, inconvenient for her. Um, that that is like the, the the antithesis of divine love. Really. Mm. So uh, those who reject God necessarily, um, uh, you know, head that way. They they may not be necessarily. I mean, there might be atheists who are pro life, but they're if there are any atheists who are pro life, they're not pro life because of any obviously any love for God but just because they consider it to be bad, bad policy. <clears throat> and again, it's all for worldly reasons. And ultimately, for the same worldly reasons that people choose to support abortion. They're looking for the same objectives. You know, Whether you say, well, abortion is good for you, it's good for society, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, whether you, you may use the same arguments to say abortion is bad for you and is bad for societies, but they're all materialistic reasons for someone who is an atheist. <clears throat> but for someone who uh, really has a certain animus or hatred toward God himself, abortion is a very, very, not only logical position, but it's, it's, a, it's a religious position for them, like an anti-religious religious position for them, uh, like the ultimate statement of rejection of God and divine sovereignty. This is what we've seen going on in England right now. And unfortunately, the, the English seems seem to have just surrendered themselves to this. Well, there are those who are protesting uh, and speaking out against this. But, um, you know, unfortunately, they're, they're letting it happen in terms of uh, who, they, who they allow to lead them. Have they no control over who is leading them. Is the vast majority of the English population actually in accord with this? Have they become so corrupted by this godlessness that they are actually in accord with this? Um, you mentioned that there are some municipalities over there that have actually enacted these already uh, and actually forbidden by law and would criminalize even making the sign of the cross or using holy water within these buffer zones. But the effort is now afoot 
to uh, make this apply to the entire nation. Um, you, the effort is now afoot that, and actually there is a, a certain, I guess we would call it a, a bill, what do they call it here? Uh, they say the Clause 11 of the Public Order Bill has already been approved by the uh, United Kingdom's House of Commons, and they approved it by a vote of 297 to 110. And uh, that was on last Tuesday night. And uh, the bill now will pass to the House of Lords. <coughs> Excuse me. And the House of Lords have to decide then. Mm -hmm. Right? And then ultimately, the king will have to acquiesce to it or, or not. Uh, that would create a so-called constitutional crisis if the king were to, uh, in a sense, reject it. But I don't expect Charles to uh, yeah. do that. I think he's, he would be all in favor of it. Now, the clause states that. What is it actually going to do when it is passed by the House of Lords? Yeah, the clause states that one who interferes, one who interferes in this buffer zone around an abortion clinic is a person who seeks to influence someone. To seek to influence, and notably in this case, someone who intends to get an abortion. So if you seek to influence anyone, that's a very broad thing. You, know, you can seek to influence someone just by being there, yeah. right? By holding a sign, right? By holding a rosary. You're seeking to influence one by looking at them with a sad look. You can, I mean, take, you could be charged with seeking to influence one. It says uh, one who interferes is a person who persistently, continuously, or repeatedly occupies. What does that mean, occupies? To seek the attention of someone who comes for an abortion? Someone who impedes or threatens? Somebody who intimidates or harasses, obviously, we've come a long way from simply seeking to influence here. Someone who advises or persuades, attempts to advise or to persuade. Someone who even attempts to advise or persuade, or otherwise it expresses an opinion contrary. Even expressing an opinion contrary would make one guilty of interfering. And someone who informs or attempts to inform about abortion services by any means, including, without limitation, graphic, physical, verbal, or written means. If someone even attempts to, uh, you know, inform somebody that there's an alternative to an abortion, even by holding a sign or... Anyway, anyway. Uh, someone who sketches, photographs, records, stores, broadcasts, or transmits images, audio, lightness, or personal data of any person without express consent. Okay, so this is so broad. Yeah. I mean, it could apply to anybody uh, standing within this this buffer zone who um, indicates the slightest disagreement with abortion. Now we might say this is insane. We would say this is crazy. This is so totally contrary to liberty. Uh, how is it possible that the English would have gone from 
let's say that being the nation that produced the Magna Carta, to this tyranny. And uh, they actually tell us here that uh, there were efforts to get this through, uh, attempts, and they say it follows on the heels of a number of attempts by Rupa Hook, a good English name, a real English, Rupa, R-U-P-A, H-U-K, who's a minister of parliament, okay, who sought to implement such criminalization of pro-lifers around abortion facilities. But those attempts failed. But now we have what is called Creasy's Amendment, which now appears more likely to succeed. Now, before we point the finger across the pond, we should actually uh, take stock as what is happening here uh, under uh, President Biden's uh, Department of Justice, as it's now still called, uh, euphemistically even, under the direction of a man who uh, is Jewish, but he's persecuting Christians, who would uh, stand up against pro-life, you know. And um, there's a certain, clearly a certain animus on the part of the man, um, and is uh, ordering the FBI to cooperate with him in this persecution of actually invading the homes, uh, uh, taking away pro-life uh, pro uh, protesters uh, in cuffs before their families, terrorizing their children, uh, holding them, uh, and then indicting them for um, things that were, well, ev evidently quite, quite uh, fab uh, fabricated, you know, as far as, we, as far as we can tell, whatever evidence we have so far. Uh, and the whole idea is to intimidate. They just keep doing this over and over again. I, I have a, a theory as to why, why they're doing this and why they're doing this now. <clears throat> but I'll, and I'll mention that in a, in a moment. But we have this going on right on our doorstep. Uh, buffer zones, no buffer zones necessary. No buffer zones necessary to have the uh, Biden's own, uh, let's say, private, well, somebody consider it to be, now his own private police force to go around and terrorize uh, innocent people just using their own uh, God-given and constitutional human rights here in America uh, to protest abortion. But Biden has already announced that if, come, uh, if Democrats uh, succeed in gaining control of the government completely uh, with the midterms, he's going to codify abortion. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is beyond challenge. And when it is codified, you can be sure that anybody who um, breathes a word against it is going to be criminalized. And uh, uh, who knows what penalties that the abortionists will imply. Because remember, abortionists are people who actually uh, murder children. And... Uh, there's no doubt about it. It's, it's, it's the, the wanton putting to death of a child. And um, they have no compunction about it whatsoever. In fact, they, they, they boast about it. They crow about it. Biden, uh, just, you know, it, it, it's, his, it's his shtick almost, you might say, right? Uh, this is one thing that the uh, Democratic Party, the Democratic Party, as, uh, as Bernie Sanders calls it, rightly, um, makes its own. I mean, this, this, this is, it, 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 it is, uh, 
It is the party of abortion right now. It stands on that. It glories in its shame. It glories in that because it, it thinks that's going to be its ticket. It thinks the American people are so corrupted already that they're 100% behind this and that that's what's going to sweep them into power. And they're counting on that. But uh, I, I think they're also, by the way, and if they, you know, anybody who would do this, anybody who would actually wantonly, knowingly murder a child, uh, and Nancy Pelosi saying it's something God wants, and, uh, and Biden saying it's something that God wants, well, maybe their God does. We, we know actually who their God is right now, or who they, who they consider to be God, okay? And it's not the God we as traditional Catholics know to be the true God, right? Um, they worship something totally other <laughs> than, than what we know to be Almighty God. Uh, so they can actually stand there and say, this is God's will, abortion is something that God wants. Um, and I would say, well, they're talking about their God. And they're making it very clear it's not the God I know, the God of my worship, the God who I believe in, the God of my love, and who is traditional Catholics we know and love. But their God demands abortion. And if they would do this, wantedly, who is safe? What life is safe from these people? Yeah. There is not a, a, a life on the face of the earth that is safe from them. If they see that it, it's, it, it serves their purpose uh, to preserve that life, they will preserve it. If they see it serves their purpose to terminate that life, they will terminate it in a heartbeat. And no compunction whatsoever. Um, and this is what concerns me so much, and this is why I, th I think, personally, totally my own opinion, that this is why I think <clears throat> the Department of Justice under Garland and the um, FBI under Ray are uh, taking such outrageous and, and uh, not only drastic but dramatic actions against uh, pro-life leaders. Um, but really have simply been protesting, you know, within the realms of the law, as far as, as far as I know, anyway, as far as anyone can tell. Um, but to make examples out of them, I think what they're trying to do, I think they're trying to provoke a reaction. I think they have been so um, brutal about this, and so egregiously overstepping the bounds of law, that they are trying desperately to provoke a reaction. And the, the reason being is they want to use a reaction of resistance uh, in order to justify imposing martial law or suspending the midterm elections. I think they're desperately trying to avoid these midterm elections. Yeah. And I think they think that they can do this by provoking some kind of um, in, an incident that they can immediately hold up, like January 6th, and say, well, now, look what we have to do now. Look what's happening. Now there's an insurrection, you know, uh, by pro-lifers. And so we have to crush this. Um, and so we have to declare a police state over it. I think that's what they're doing, or hoping to do. And um, God forbid that that should happen, right? God forbid that that should happen. But if it did happen... I don't think it would be, it would be uh, real pro-lifers who would be guilty of it. I think they would have done it themselves. I think they would have staged it themselves, like a false flag operation. Uh, 
If they can't succeed in provoking pro false lifers to cross that line, to react, um, even justifiably to this, this, this outrageous uh, abuse of power, if they can't provoke pro-lifers to stand up against it at some point and resist it, I think they're going to, they're abortionists. I mean, what's going to stop them? Any, any, any conscience there, you know, uh, uh, to actually stage something that they can use? Um, e even the question of uh, President Biden running again uh, for uh, the office of presidency in 2024. I mean, for the longest time now, for months, um, you know, the question has been an embarrassing question for the Democratic Party. The people who belong in the, to the party have been saying that, uh, well, they can't say whether Biden should run or not. They're kind of noncommittal, right? And all of a sudden now, it's, it's like they're closing ranks around Biden again. And uh, you see the leftists follow the same pattern. They find somebody who can be useful to them. It's like, like a, a Joe Biden. Right? And uh, th they know that Joe Biden is not really a leftist. Because to be a leftist, he's no more of a leftist than Hunter Biden is a leftist. Because to be a leftist, you have to have principles. And Joe Biden and Hunter Biden have no principles. As far as I can see, they, they have no principles anyway. It's just, uh, they're in it for Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, you know. Uh, that's what they're in it for. And people who are in it for them, for themselves, can be manipulated and used any way, turned any way you want. Um, uh, but they're useful. And the minute they stop being useful, you see this happen in history, the leftists get rid of them and make markers out of them. So they, they simply liquidate them and blame it on the opposition. Look what they did to us. They, they took away you know, our great leader, uh, these horrible, vicious savages. You know, uh, uh, and they have no compunction, it seems. You look back in history and you see you know, the leaders of the leftists uh, being felled by their own revolutionaries, by their own leftists, uh, condemned to death, like uh, the Stalinist show trials, and so on. But they, they would not stop at assassinating them either, for the sake of making a martyr out of them, and again blaming it on the opposition. So, again, this is just my own particular take on, the, on what's happening here, that I wouldn't be a bit surprised to find that that scenario is being set up before our very eyes. So I would just ask people to please be very careful, you know, and don't even, you know, give the appearance of uh, favoring anything like this. Uh, if anything like that were to happen, um, it would not be the pro-lifers who would do it, though. It would be the leftists. The leftists are the ones who uh, use human life to serve their purposes. It's what the pro-lifers are dead set against doing, that the abortionists are doing. And um, if they, as I say, if, if they would put to death one baby or a, a million babies or a hundred million babies, um, what, would, what would hold them back from doing something that, that again, served their purpose uh, in securing power and their hold on power? 
So I think uh, that uh, the, the, the godly people in the world today are in their gun sites right now, and I think we are, we are definitely targeted by them, and we have to be very, very careful uh, not to let them uh, bait us and goad us into serving their purposes. Mm. Uh, but we have to be very, very much on guard about their tactics and, and not be terribly surprised uh, when we see things unfolding the way they do and think and not fall into their propaganda pit uh, saying, oh my goodness, a pro-lifer did this terrible thing. Now, no, that would be not only contrary to our principles to do these terrible things, but it is totally, totally in accord with their principles to do it. That's their modus operandi. And they see in that, uh, you know, their meat and potatoes, right, as it were, uh, are follow is following the manual. And the manual has been set by the godless throughout history. And we have, uh, unfortunately, they are right now in power here in America and evidently in the UK too. So we are horrified what we see happening here with these buffer zones surrounding abortion uh, so-called clinics in England, but we have to realize that we're actually beyond that point here in America right now. Father, I, I wanted to mention in regards to, um, to some of these buffer zones and some of these uh, province, provinces over there that already have them in place and already have some of these in, in place. One particular was mentioned in one of the articles that I read, and um, I'm not sure the, their, their process for, for codifying laws over there, but... Um, for whatever reason, they had a, a, a survey sent out in one of these provinces. Um, they had thousands of responses to it, and the overwhelming majority, I think fully 75% of the responses were in favor of these um, of the, these buffer zones. So, okay. um, and I'm, the, so we're told. Yeah, yeah, so for, we're for, what it's, for what it's worth. Um, but it seems apparently that, that the English people themselves are, are voting for this. But I, mm. I wonder, Father, if those same surveys were um, to be had here in America and the United States, what kind of, what kind of uh, response they would get? But do you, do you think, Father, that um, <clears throat> that that's our, a very good question, Tom? Do you think that our um, our left here and the United States is in any way monitoring this and keeping tabs on this and um, you know seeing how this goes um, and if they have any any um, idea of, of you know because it seems like out and out religious persecution mm. essentially is what it amounts Certainly. to, do you think that they have any um, any idea of putting something like that into effect here in America? How far-fetched would that be to see something like this? Oh, uh, clearly. That's exactly what their intention is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they've raided the homes of uh, pro-life leaders. Uh, but not just leaders in terms of people getting a microphone and speaking pro-life, but people have actually shown up at abortion clinics. And uh, trying to convince people not to abort their babies, but offer to help them in any way to keep their babies. Um, and these people are being targeted uh, for criminal prosecution, federal, federal prosecution. And uh, this happened once, and there was a, a certain backlash in the country against it. You know, if you, if you read the surveys and the polls here, you hear that uh, a great number of people here in America are against that kind of thing, and they think it's outrageous that uh, the FBI should do such a thing, at least the surveys that I've seen, okay? <clears throat> Does that discourage them from doing it? No. They do it again a second time, 
like, like a week later. And again, there's this, this backlash of people saying, this is, this is hor horrible, you know, what, what is happening to our justice system that they're, I mean, they let rioters run, run amok in, in Portland and other cities and do nothing to stop them and prosecute them, and they release them uh, if they arrest them at all. Uh, you know, they're, they're letting crimes go, uh, you know, completely un unimpeded around the country. And they're devoting their police uh, efforts to crushing pro-lifers, uh, you know, who on the grounds that they're somehow impeding access to abortion. Uh, what has happened to our justice system that has been so corrupted? Uh, people are reacting this way, I understand. And then they do it again. And that's why I say the fact that they're doing this and keep hammering away at this is what convinces me that they are, they're trying to provoke a reaction. They're hammering away at this, hoping that somebody somewhere will do something really bad. And, but again, it's, it's, not, it's not really genuine pro-lifers, uh, uh, according to their principles, to do anything outrageous. Certainly that would endanger human life. And, um, I mean, you may find some people who are kind of on the fringe um, who are outraged by just the way it's happening, but they don't necessarily be genuine pro-lifers. But I, I tend to think that the real danger here, uh, because I don't expect anyone who's truly pro-life would fall into that trap, uh, that they would just simply spring the traps themselves. And uh, that they would themselves, the leftists themselves, would provoke, would not only provoke something, but would just basically do what they did in, in, in Michigan with uh, people who were charged with uh, planning on kidnapping, you know, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, it's clear, I mean, it's, it's clear as it can be, at least in my mind, for what it's worth, that this was, uh, you know, orchestrated by the FBI. Mm. What, what? And they promote these people who, who are actually doing these things. They after, after they move on to something else, and they move them higher in the organization. What would a, a true pro-life reaction be to something like this? Should, should pro-lifers comply with this law? Should they stay away from abortion clinics? No, pro-lifers should continue to do what they do. And they are. I mean, they are largely continuing to do what they do. Look at 40 Days for Life. Uh, knowing that this is what is going on, they're still out there and they're still trying to let people know that this, you know, abortion is murder and everybody pays the price. Uh, not only a child pays with his life or, or her life, but I mean, everybody pays. The whole nation pays the price, right? The mother pays, uh, no matter how she may, uh, what should you say, uh, flaunt her abortion or whatever it is they say, you know. Boast your abortion. Shout your abortion. Shout your abortion. I mean, it's like they're trying to shout out the voices inside, you know. Um, but um, it's a terrible thing, you know, awful thing. Um, and um, they're continuing to say it is. Uh, so God bless them for that. And, um, you know, but we do have to acknowledge, admonish our, our people, where they're taking part in the um, 40 Days for Life uh, at the end of this month, <clears throat> and we have to admonish them, whatever you do, you know, be there to pray, but uh, don't give any pretext to any leftist to denounce you for 
you know, uh, put you in a position where, you know, you could be charged with violating federal law or something like that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if a, if a leftist pushes you, don't push him back, you know, or whatever, and trying to provoke you into doing or saying something that they can accuse you of uh, hurting their feelings, you know. Uh, but that's what it's come to here in the United States of the United States of America. What's mm -hmm. left of it? Yeah. Um, so, but the pro-lifers are not the type to um, um, to simply um, give up easily. They uh, they know there's a price to be paid for this, and it's a satanic evil, and we would expect that uh, it's not just the powers of earth; the powers of hell are against them too. Right. right. So. Well, we'll, we'll uh, continue to monitor this situation and see what happens with it, Father, and continue to, to pray for all those involved. But um, if we uh, could get to uh, just a, a couple viewer emails um, for the show tonight, I had one here that we wanted to start with where a viewer wrote in and said, specifically, what dogmas have the Vatican II post-conciliar popes changed, if any? Um, could you read that again, please? Yes, Specifically, what dogmas have the Vatican II post-conciliar popes changed, if any? Oh, okay. <laughs> the reason why I asked you to read that again is because uh, I thought I had seen that. I thought the question was, uh, what dogmas has Vatican II changed? Okay. And uh, that's different from what, I, what I'm hearing now. So, uh, well, I mean, even with regard to um, Vatican II itself, right? I think you'd have a hard time uh, making a case that a Vatican, the documents of Vatican II uh, officially changed any dogma or contradicted any dogma of the faith. I think what you could uh, support absolutely without any hesitation is that the documents of Vatican II undermined the doctrines of faith. I'll give you an example. Okay. Uh, the document, Dignitatis Humanae Personae, the, of the dignity of the human person, which is called the Declaration on Religious Liberty. Um, we have a, an absolute striking departure from Catholic doctrine there. Um, the document actually there, there were a couple of paragraphs that were added to it to appease the conservatives at Vatican II uh, because it was very much a religious indifferentist document the way it was being proposed and it had a lot of opposition um, but in order to overcome that opposition uh, there were added two paragraphs which made it sound moderately Catholic, talking about a true faith and the fact that everyone has an obligation and conscience to seek and to find the true faith, okay? And having dispensed with that, the document then launches into a quite a mutilation of the Catholic teaching about that very subject, one true faith and the obligation to adhere to the one true faith. The document uh, goes on to talk about how no one can be coerced to um, practice, uh, to a religious practice that he doesn't believe in. 
Um, so no one can be kind of coerced to accept not only inwardly but outwardly. I mean, in in practice, uh, a religion which is not his own, which he doesn't believe in. And as a matter of fact, the Catholic Church has always taught that that you cannot coerce someone to practice the religion if he doesn't believe. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, calumny against the church, saying, well, the church was forcing these conversions. But the fact is, that the church, and the actual church itself, not just church men, uh, with all of their foibles and what they do, uh, even contrary to the faith, uh, the church herself has made it very clear from the beginning you cannot, you know, force someone to convert uh, to Catholicism. Um, and even even with regard to something as fundamental as baptizing the baby of a Jewish couple, the church uh, absolutely forbade that. There were very heavily, heavy penalties for doing that. Let's say you had a Jewish couple who had a... Christian um, uh, housemaid or someone like that who wanted to take upon herself to baptize the Jewish babies, the church actually forbade that. And there would not only be uh, penalties, moral penalties for it, there'd be substantial civil penalties too. Um, there would be heavy fines. People, people were heavily fined for that. They were... <coughs> excuse me, warned that you cannot do that without the... Um, there are two things. Without the parents' consent, you cannot do that. And even to this day, I mean, we're warned in the ritual that you cannot baptize a baby whom you know will not be raised as a Catholic. You just can't do it. Uh, um, so, um, and you can't do baptize a baby contrary to the child's to the parents' consent. Uh, unless the child is actually dying. If the child is actually uh, near death, then you can baptize the child. But other than that, you can't just go around baptizing other people's children. Again, there are severe penalties, ecclesiastical and civil penalties in, in Catholic societies for doing that. But what the document goes against is where it says you can't restrain someone from practicing his religion. And the, the church has always said, well, yes, you can't, in a Catholic society, you have to be able to restrain someone from practicing uh, religious, uh, from in, indulging in religious beliefs that are actually against the very foundation of the society. Um, you know, if somebody wants to start a religion, the, the foundation of which is, is taking fentanyl, uh, crack cocaine, uh, snorting cocaine um, or hashish, uh, you know, and all the rest, <coughs> then uh, obviously a society has a right to protect itself from that. But uh, the church recognizes that, yes, this, this would be something that would be very detrimental to any society, let alone a Catholic society. And so if you have a, a, a formerly Catholic society which has declared itself such, and a society has a right to do that. Um, then it does have the right to restrict uh, what, what people actually do in the name of religion. Now, in practice, the church does believe in tolerance and toleration. 
And um, so you found that, that often Protestants would persecute other Protestants who didn't believe as they believed. Uh, when our country was founded, for example, uh, the province of Maryland was established under the Cabots, who had re obtained a writ uh, from the, the uh, government of England to establish a Catholic colony here. Uh, and so they established Maryland, and um, Catholics began to come at great hardship, and they began to populate the colony of Maryland. And before long, there were Protestants who arrived who were being persecuted by other Protestants in other colonies. And they were arriving in Maryland, and the Marylanders, the Catholic Marylanders, actually took them in and sheltered them. And... Um, there was tolerance for the Protestant religion, the Protestant beliefs, I should say, Protestant believers. They were given a kind of refuge or sanctuary in, in Catholic Maryland that they were not receiving from other Protestant colonies. And this is more of a Catholic trait than anything else. It is not a Protestant trait. Um, uh, unless they've gotten so far in their Protestantism that they just don't believe anymore or really don't don't. Uh, don't care, right? <laughs> Which is unfortunately where often, often where it leads. But uh, in any case, if one looks back in history, one finds that there was a toleration uh, on the part of Catholics. Now there are those who would say, "Well, wait a minute," and I look at the persecutions that happened, you know, under, um, you know, when Luther started teaching what he did, when Wesley started what he was teaching, when. Huss was teaching when he was teaching in um, Bohemia. Uh, look at what they call Bloody Mary, right? Uh, in England. Well, yeah. Um, basically, um, uh, were there were there wrong, was there wrongdoing there? Yeah, of course there was wrongdoing there. Was it the church sanctioning it? No, not necessarily. But the point is that um, this was actually uh, considered. Well, you might say normal, because the, the violence was taking place on all sides. And often the church was more reacting to the violence that was inflicted upon her and by, upon her own children, her Catholic children. I mean, the violence that was inflicted by John Huss um, in Bohemia against Catholics was really horrific. Um, so we're dealing with actual criminal activity here uh, in terms of Catholics being persecuted and people actually um, being guilty of criminal acts there uh, against Catholics. And, uh, so, you know, we're not talking about an out-and-out -out persecution as such. We're talking about an effort to, to maintain some, some degree of, uh, of civil order here uh, where Catholics, even in a Catholic society, are being uh, persecuted even unto death by those who've you know, taking the law into their own hands. And, uh, but, I mean, you know, one can say, well, there's plenty of blame to go around. You know, there, there are always Catholics who are the, the, they did differently, but I would say they're the exception, not the rule. If you were to actually examine the official teaching of the church and what she expects uh, her Catholic people to follow, I think you'd find what I'm saying is true. That the Catholic church was actually very tolerant, more tolerant than any uh, certainly any other religious body.
Um, in any case, um, one thing that needs to be said here, though, is that um, this document on religious liberty, in saying that one has a right to practice whatever religious principles he chooses to believe in at any given time, and without any uh, impediment <coughs> or restraint. The document on religious liberty uh, of Vatican II says five times that the one authority that has the right to restrain the practice of religion is the state, is the state government, and that for the sake of maintaining public order. Now, I mean, we look at what's happening in the world today, we see this, and we look back at Vatican II and the statements of Vatican II, and we see that there is certainly the germ of that. The seed is planted there already at Vatican II. For what we saw happening here, even during this COVID epidemic, the shutting of the churches, Francis already did that before he was even told to, right? Uh, which showed that he was perfectly willing to shut down the churches um, and deprive people of his glorious Novus Ordo. <laughs> <coughs> and that's perfectly fine with him. And his bishops, too. But the fact is that that power has already been conceded by Vatican II mm -hmm. to the civil government <clears throat> in principle. It's there. That the civil government, according to Vatican II, has the right for public order to shut down the churches and to impede the practice of religion. That's exactly what Pope Pius X said uh, the modernists do. That's exactly what he said the modernists would do. And uh, lo and behold, um, that's exactly what the modernists are carrying out even now. Um, as far as what comes after Vatican II, though, I just wanted to mention this case um, of Vatican II because it, it, it's, it, it obviously set a precedent for what came afterwards and what has come afterwards. And again, you know, one might say, well, um, have there been any dogmas of the faith that have been out and out uh, contradicted? Um, well, yes, there have been uh, priests like Hans Kung, for example, who is notorious, who have just blatantly denied dogmas of the faith and remained, quote-unquote, priests in good standing with the Novus Ordo. Whereas priests who simply want to hold on to the traditional faith and the traditional catechisms have been branded and have been uh, excommunicated, um, have been marginalized, threatened, it's very much like what you see happening in the civil government in the United States of America, where people who are rioting in the streets are okay. And, but people who would stop them and would, uh, you know, uh, want, them, want them stopped are the bad guys now. Um, so that kind of revolution is certainly mirrored in our own civil, civil government here right now. But, uh, you know, if you, if you look at, if you listen to Francis, well, I mean, you, you, you can go right on down the line. I mean, you, you, you see what has happened to the liturgy, what they've done to that, and how they've adulterated that. And they basically expunged from the new Mass in a clear statement that this is the sacrifice of Calvary, that is the essence of the Mass. They've expunged that from the new Mass. The new Mass remembers that Jesus died for us long, long ago, far, far away on Calvary. And Jesus died to save us from our sins. The New Mass acknowledges that. But nowhere does the New Mass say 
This is the sacrifice of Calvary. Uh, right here, right now, in this church in front of us, this is the sacrifice of Calvary. But the essence of the Mass. The New Mass says it's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Over and over again, we hear the New Mass is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. The but the Council of Trent itself said, if anybody says that the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and not a sacrifice of reparation for sin, anathema sit, anathema. He's excommunicated for saying that. There's a difference between saying the, the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and on the other hand saying, only, only saying that the Mass is a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. You see? But that's, that's the difference here, you know? The New Mass doesn't come out and say, the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, but the fact is that the Mass, the New Mass, only says that it is a prayer, a, a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Yeah. Again, undermining the Catholic faith in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And so th that is uh, how it has been going on and on to this very day uh, with Francis, undermining, undermining, undermining belief. And, um, I mean, so many outrageous things that Francis has done contrary to the faith. When I say contrary to the faith, I don't necessarily mean a blatant point-by-point uh, -point denial of Catholic dogma. I mean contrary to the Catholic religion as a whole, contrary to the Catholic Church as an entirety. They have this, uh, this pontifical uh, council whatever for life, family life, and so on. And Francis appoints this woman to this council who is high in the, in the World Economic Forum. She's an atheist and she's a pro-abortionist, and he appoints her. This is just one of many, many such appointments he's made and awards he's given to abortionists and so on, uh, promoting, promoting their message, promoting their cause, promoting <laughs> their influence in his church. At what point do you say, this man is an enemy of Christ, this man is an enemy of the Catholic faith, an enemy of the Catholic religion, an enemy of the Catholic Church? And if he can be a true pope, then so could Satan, so could, so could the Antichrist. Uh, by, by every justification I have why he could still be a true pope, I, I, I could justify the Antichrist himself, or the head of the Communist Party of China, <laughs> becoming the head of the Church. It'd be no more an enemy of the faith than Francis has been. So, um, you know, again, I mean, this is above my pay grade to pronounce for the, all mankind and you know, all members of the church that Francis, you know, is not Pope. I, I'm, I'm not uh, competent. I don't have the competence to do that. I can have my own opinion on the matter and be very convinced that it's true. But uh, that's where I think the Sede Vicantis, who are so dogmatic, need to relax a little bit. And uh, those who are anti-state of Vicantis are insistent that Francis must be the Pope, uh, that they realize they're painting themselves into a corner um, um, because they're actually doing away with the very meaning of the papacy. Uh, in order to justify Francis being the Pope, they have to downgrade the very concept of what a Pope is to the point where there's nothing left of the papacy anymore. Uh, I think they both need to recognize, well, you know, none of us is competent, does the authority to make this judgment for all, all mem members of the church or all mankind. And so we can debate this and we have principles and we can 
we can argue the point, but none of us has the authority to make the statement, you know, uh, to make the judgment. But one thing that we all have not only the authority to do, we have the absolute obligation to do, is to practice the traditional Catholic religion. Believe the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety, according to the traditional Catholic catechisms. We have to accept that on faith. And we have to practice it in the traditional Catholic religion. Traditional Mass, the traditional Catholic sacraments, before Vatican II, and before the modernists uh, poisoned the Church with their modernism. We have to go back before that. We have to, as Archbishop Vigano says, bury Vatican II. Uh, he's absolutely right about that, to bury it and go back and practice the traditional Catholic faith in its integrity. Uh, Father Moore, Don Moore, said uh, very well when someone asked him, where should we start? His answer was, well, get a catechism. And by that, I, I, you know he means the traditional catechism. And learn the catechism, the traditional catechism. So he was actually pointing to the fact that so many Catholics don't even know their faith. They have no basis on which to even judge what's going on right now. We're going to assess the value or lack of value in what's happening. And so, so many have lost the faith or never had it because it was never taught to them. Um, they styled themselves Catholics and that they couldn't tell you this. Uh, they couldn't even answer, well, what is sin? What is grace? Uh, <laughs> I can't tell you these things. <laughs> um, what is the incarnation? Um, so he says, go back to the catechism, learn the faith. And uh, that's, that's where you have to rebuild right now. Mm. Um, I guess maybe I see Don Morris in a sense reflecting what Pope Pius X said uh, back in the early 1900s, over 100 years ago, in his encyclical Cebo Nimis, in which he said that the fact is, and this is at that time he was saying, that there are many Catholics whose faith, knowledge of their faith is so faulty that they don't even have the fundamental truths of the faith necessary to save their souls. This was in 1905, 1906. Said, um, so, um, you know, this bespeaks a real tragedy, but it also gives you an idea of how the modernists were able to, to capitalize on the ignorance of the faith to do their dirty work and to... Uh, infiltrate the church, as they said that they would, as the Masons said they would in the early 1800s. Then in the early 1900s, Pope Pius X warns about the modernists in, in the church. Our Lady comes and warns about Russia spreading her errors throughout the world. Uh, just 10 years after Pius X warns about the modernists within the church. The two of them are related to each other, Tom, these two revolutions. We have to see them, in a sense, not only as, one re as two revolutions, but as one revolution. One outside the church and one within the church. Mm. But they are meant to coalesce in uh, the one world religion and the reign of the Antichrist. Um, the, only, the only solution for us personally is to remain faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ, remain faithful to the traditional Catholic Church, uh, recognize what's going on to the, far, the extent that we can, uh, and simply practice the, the traditional Catholic faith. The Mass, the sacraments, uh, read, learn, believe the Catechism, and so on. Mm -hmm. That's the answer. That's what Our Lady warned us to, that we have to do. Father, just, just one last email. One of our, our viewers said, with all of this going on in the Novus Ordo, if we should consider uh, Vatican City to be mission territory today. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I would say it's not only true of Vatican City. I think it's true of the whole world right now. I think the whole world is mission territory today. And, uh, you know, the church herself has given us the lead in that because she, she has always had uh, certain procedures that she would allow in mission times and in mission countries that uh, ordinarily in established Catholic countries where the practice of the faith is the norm would not be allowed. But in mission countries where you're trying to spread the faith under adverse circumstances, very hostile territory, the church has um, given a certain pre leeway and latitude, as it were, uh, to uh, profess the faith and to live the faith, um, as, as the church has also granted in times of persecution, right? In times of war, when there's a breakdown of communication and so on. That's the time we're in now. I notice there's this great divide among the uh, conservative Catholics and the traditional Catholics, and even among traditional Catholics in name only and real traditional Catholics who want to practice the traditional faith in its entirety. And that is the way they assess the situation. The conservative Catholics kind of assist, assess the situation as, and I'm saying, when I say conservative Catholic, I mean Catholics who still have the doctrines of the faith, they still believe them but they're still attached to the Novus Ordo, as though that's Catholicism. And they're experiencing constantly this contradiction between what they believe and what they're witnessing going on in and around their churches and coming from their clergy and their hierarchy. But they still cling to it. But they have the idea, well, this is an anomaly, this too will pass. I mean, the church has been through hard times before, and we just have to hold on. And yes, we believe the faith. We realize that all these terrible things going on in the church but we still have to go along with it. We still have to be a part of it. We still have to uh, somehow somehow justify in our own minds that this is still Catholicism and uh, these people still represent the Catholic faith in spite of the fact what they're saying and doing. Okay? We still have to, have to somehow um, bridge that gap or somehow overlook that contradiction. And then they have, like, the, the, you have the traditional Catholics who still practice the traditional faith, more or less, but are willing to compromise with the Novus Ordo so as to try to stay kind of in the good graces. And uh, who want to be recognized by the Novus Ordo, more or less, you know. And I put the Society of St. Pius X in that category, you know. They're trying to skirt the edges of the Novus Ordo and kind of, go along with that, even, you know, practice a certain amount of collegiality, practice a certain amount of, um, uh, what should I say, intercommunion with the Novus Ordo and uh, Novus Ordo clergy and uh, so on. And they have the idea, well, you know, now things are really terrible, but uh, after all, somehow, in spite of it all, you know, we have to recognize that in order to, I guess, um, you know, not to, to make people think that we're still all one big happy family deep down, and it's just kind of a family squabble. And uh, there's nothing so outrageously evil that we can't somehow still be in communion with it. Uh, but then there are the real traditional Catholics who realize that what the modernists have begotten here is a, a, a substitute for the Catholic faith and is a, is a monster. It's a modernist monster. And it's what 
St. Pius X, it's full-blown what St. Pius X denounced as not Catholicism, but as the enemy of Catholicism, the synthesis of all heresies, he called modernism. And that's what they've actually produced here. And, uh, or they're well on their way to bringing it into being. They're birthing it right now in Francis's synodal church. And those traditional Catholics who are fully traditional say, we cannot do this, we can't have anything to do with this. This is a corruption of the Catholic faith. Modernism, we recognize what it is. It's what Pius X, St. Pius X said it is. It is not only the antithesis of Catholicism, it is the complexus of all heresies, you know, leading to a complete denial of the faith. That's where it leads. And we cannot follow that way. We cannot justify that. We cannot sugarcoat it. We cannot put a cherry on top and call it Catholicism. Um, we recognize it for what it is. And um, recognizing it, we can't dissimulate that we don't. We can't pretend uh, for the sake of going, getting along, going along to get along. Uh, we have to sound the alarm and simply practice the traditional faith in its entirety. This is what the Church has always said throughout our history Catholics should do. In times of confusion, in times of chaos, the Catholic Church uh, has always taught its people that hold fast to the traditions you have received. And that means rejecting the uh, monstrous machinations of the modernists of the Vatican II and what has come from it, and practice the traditional Catholic faith in its entirety, in its integrity. This means the true traditional Mass, not modified by the modernists, right? Going back to the traditional Mass before they got their evil mitts on it to change it, to begin the change process, which is exactly what we are striving to do, to be faithful that way. Well, Father, thank you for all that. Thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate everything that you do. Well, well Tom, that's mutual. Thank you. God bless you. God and all of our viewers here. Yes, thanks to all of our viewers for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.